Now let's turn to Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me, for your goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth, to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon, look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. Once again, I wish to read the first article of the Belgic Confession. Article 1, concerning the only God. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, this evening we've come to the final attribute or, or characteristic of God as outlined in uh, this first article of the Belgic Confession. And that is the goodness of God. God is completely or perfectly good and the overflowing uh, source or fountain of all good. Now, we might not uh, think that there's anything particularly striking about that description of God as good, because that's a word that is uh, often used in a rather bland, general, nondescript way. Uh, to describe everything from uh, a cup of coffee to a morning. We say good morning. We say that's good. And uh, it's a word that is used very often. In fact, sometimes people will even say my goodness and uh, as an expression. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ in uh, uh, the Gospels in Luke and in Matthew uh, and Mark gave the highest place to this description of God as good. You remember the account of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus 
and said to him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered him, Why do you call me good? There is one only who is good, and that is God. He directed his attention to God as the one who only and supremely, absolutely, is good. Now, whether this uh, man spoke of Jesus as a good teacher by way of by way of flattery or or rather thoughtlessly, uh, Jesus directed his attention to God and made clear that God alone is truly and perfectly good. And so that means that if any man, if any woman, if any person can be called good, and there are instances in Scripture of this designation applied to people. Barnabas, we're told, was a good man. We know then that that goodness is uh, from God, and it reflects God's goodness, though in a very small way. The goodness of God is a most wonderful, rich, and the most comforting attribute of God, uh, teaching us to look for goodness, uh, goodness of every kind, only as from God, and only ultimately as in God. Our God is the overflowing uh, fountain or source of all good. Uh, our uh, translation of our confession in this version that we have now uses the word source, but I always think of uh, a more familiar older rending, the overflowing fountain of all good. It means the same thing, but the word fountain just resonates with me a little bit more wonderfully than source. God is the overflowing fountain or source of all good. And we're going to be looking at these few verses indicated in Psalm 25 in this connection, especially verses uh, 6 through 11. And we're just dipping into a part of this psalm which really extols the, the goodness and the mercy of God in a wonderful way. We begin by considering that God's goodness is the sum of all his moral attributes. And uh, it's important for us to appreciate that. Otherwise, we might think, well, what about God's mercy? Uh, what about God's love? What about God's kindness? What about God's holiness? These things are not listed, you will note, in uh, the Belgic Confession's description of God. That doesn't mean that it's ignoring these things, but rather it's recognizing that these are all uh, subcategories, if you will, of the umbrella turn of, of God's God's goodness. God's goodness embraces these things. And so I say it's the summary of all his moral Attributes. They're all included in this statement. He is completely good. And that actually fits the way we often use the word goodness when we use it seriously. When we say, he's a good mom, a good dad, or he's a good man, he's, a, she's a good, she's a good mom, a good boss, a good friend, a good teacher. We're not just singling out one particular characteristic, but we're in a way saying that, uh, that, uh, this, this lady is all that a mother should be. This man is all that a father should be. They care for their children. Uh, they provide. They're attentive to them. Uh, they discipline them, but with kindness and fairness. They may correct them, uh, but uh, not with harshness. They They love them, but they don't spoil them. They love them wisely. And so you can recognize that a term like good, used seriously and thoughtfully, really embraces a whole variety of, of characteristics that's, that are kind of summed up in that one word, good. 
it's a word then that has a very broad meaning as, uh, as it describes God, as it is used according, uh, uh, to scripture, as we'll see. God is good in a very comprehensive sense. In, uh, verse, uh, seven, we read, uh, the psalmist saying, do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake. And there we see that, that the display of mercy is a reflection of the goodness of God. And so the psalmist is appealing to the goodness of God as he prays for mercy because God is merciful because he is good. And mercy is just one of the manifold uh, expressions of, of God's goodness. In fact, uh, in verse 11, it says, For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. There he's praying for the same thing, the forgiveness of sins, the pardon of iniquity, but there he is appealing to the name of God. And he had just appealed to the goodness of God. And actually, there's a kind of parallel here. Because the name of God refers to who he is. It refers to, in a way, all his, his attributes and their sum total. And God is good in all that he is and all that he does. His name, that is who he is, is good. So there's a marvelous fullness then to this revelation of God as good. It's not, it's not just one fruit, but it's like a basket of fruit. Not one precious gift, but uh, both arms uh, full of gifts, if you will. And that's how it is used so often in Scripture. God's goodness uh, compels our worship. We heard that in our in our call to worship from from Psalm 100. We're summoned to enter into His gates with thanksgiving, into His courts with praise, to be thankful to Him and bless His name. For the Lord is good. For his mercy is everlasting. In the earlier part of this very uh, same psalm, we're also called to come into his presence with singing and know that the Lord, he is God. The fact that God, God is God compels our worship. And that God is good compels our worship. You might say that this language of the psalm, that God is good and his truth, endures for all generations or his mercy endures forever it's almost like it's almost like a motto it's almost like uh, a theme song of israel's worship we hear it repeated again and again oh give thanks unto the lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever think of psalm 136 that also like psalm 106 begins in that way oh give thanks to the lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever and then the remainder of the psalm enumerates the ways in which God reveals His goodness and with the repeated refrain, for His mercy endures forever. The previous Psalm 134, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. And so it's such a prominent uh, theme in Scripture. The goodness of God is that which which compels our worship, that which we should remember, that we should reflect upon often. If you call God the good Lord, right? And, I, and I've heard people refer to God as the good Lord. And I don't object to that. As long as they're not saying it as just kind of in kind of a sentimental, sappy way, uh, as just kind of in a customary uh, way. Because some, sometimes people refer to the good Lord, and they're not particularly uh, religious folks anyway. 
But if you refer to the Lord as the good Lord, do so with intention and with understanding, because he is a good God. He is indeed the good Lord. And uh, furthermore, I would say that if you want to honor God as supremely good, be careful that you don't buy into the common way of speech that characterizes many in their description of humanity in general. You know, people say things like, well, I I think that that people are all basically good at heart, or most people are, are good people. Well, that's just simply not true. And it's as if uh, this term goodness, which describes God, is used to describe people who are far from good in terms of biblical terms. And let me make one more application. If you have fallen into the habit, and if it's a form of speech maybe that you inherited from your parents to say, my goodness, please stop doing that. And recognize that it's one of those minced oaths, right? In other words, it's another, it's another way of saying my God without saying my God. You realize that? You think of that? And if you think of that, well, then you ought not to say that. Or if you think that you're actually referring to your goodness, why are you talking about your goodness? My goodness? What do you have to say about your goodness? So it's one of those expressions. At the very least, it's an idle word, right? And I know that uh, such expressions can become so habitual that uh, we uh, may use them automatically without thought or reflection. But hopefully what I'm saying to you will uh, help you to remember when you find yourself saying that uh, that expression. God's goodness is the sum of all his moral attributes. God alone is supremely good. And uh, God's goodness is also the confidence of of the needy. In other words, the fact that God is good is like one of those bottom line um, comforts and securities that we have as those who are needy, as those who need mercy. In our psalm, we can hear how God's goodness provides a great plea, a kind of a kind of argument, if you will, for sinners. It says in verse verse six. Remember, O Lord, your mercies, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses. Even that uh, prayer is rich when you consider it, because both of these words are in the plural, right? It doesn't say tender mercy, but tender mercies, because they are, they are manifold. There are so very many. And according to your loving kindnesses, not simply God's, Character as, as, uh, loving kind, loving kindness, but the fact that, uh, God shows his loving kindness in, in manifold ways. And we are confronted with his loving kindnesses in his actions, the way he displays, uh, who he is. God pours out these gifts of his goodness. The psalmist says, they are from of old. That is God's tender mercies and Loving kindnesses, meaning that uh, they are as old as God's everlasting character, and they have been displayed ever since there were needy people to receive them. He goes on, do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. You ever pray that kind of prayer? Do the sins of former years ever come to mind and trouble you? Do you ever feel some sadness and shame? Do you ever feel bad? For the harm perhaps you've done to others? Do you ever reflect on, reflect on the fact that there may have, have been a time where you and you were in fellowship in the practice of sin with others? And they're still there. By the grace of God, your life has changed. And you know that it's God's goodness and mercy that makes you to differ 
from those that were once your close companions in the practice of what is wrong. There's the reality of our sinful past and the the grace and the goodness of God that makes the difference. But then there's the ongoing need for for mercy. He says, remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. That suggests the ongoing uh, practice of of coming short or uh, going beyond uh, the rule that God has given to us in his word. But notice what the plea is. It's a plea for mercy, and it's mercy according to God's goodness, flowing out of his goodness. We have a similar kind of prayer uh, for uh, forgiveness in Psalm 86, verse, verse 5, where uh, we read, Be merciful to me, O Lord, verse 3, for I cry to you all day long. Rejoice the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. There he appeals to God as good and he spells out how that goodness is manifested in God's readiness to forgive and his abundant mercy to all who call upon him. God's goodness is also the hope of what we might uh, say are great sins or great sinners. Notice verse 11 where the psalmist prays, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. And when you think about it, that might sound like a rather strange kind of argument, a strange kind of plea. Imagine a defense lawyer saying to the judge, Judge, uh, please acquit my client, because his crimes are so very great. That, that just doesn't make sense. That's like an argument for severe judgment. But here the psalmist is saying, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. And it is great. And he's not exaggerating. And we're taught here that God is not moved, certainly, to forgive us by minimizing our sin, by denying it, or by excusing it, because that doesn't honor the truth of who he is. We must never think that by uh, minimizing our sin in our thoughts or in our prayers, that that somehow will move God to forgive us. Forgiveness of sin costs the blood of of God's beloved Son. And God doesn't give out forgiveness without also teaching uh, sinners to value it greatly. Now, that doesn't mean they must value it adequately before they receive it, because there's a sense in which the entire Christian life is a matter of learning just how marvelous and wonderful God's mercy is to us, how much it costs and how freely he bestows it upon us. But we value it, we treasure it. And we know that God is even glorified in pardoning our sins. His goodness is magnified. His goodness is exercised when he forgives sinners for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness for great sinners because God's name is great in his goodness. And because of his goodness, God also teaches sinners. Psalm 119 also has the prayer, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. There the psalmist is praying that God would effectively teach him his will, and he makes his plea on the basis of God's goodness. And we have uh, the very same thing in verses 8 and 9, where the psalmist prays, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. 
And notice here how God's goodness and uprightness are joined together. God is good. God is righteous. God is just. And again, we see those things combined to our comfort. People that don't know God, uh, they find no comfort in the thought of God's justice. The thought of God's justice, if they take it seriously, it frightens them. And well, it should. Because if they do not know the forgiveness of their sins through Christ, they have great reason to fear God's uh, justice. But for you, God's justice ought not to terrify and frighten you. God's righteousness ought not to disturb and trouble you. That was the case with Martin Luther. If you know the history of the, the beginning of the Reformation and the, uh, the, the experience of Martin Luther, as he tried to repent uh, sufficiently for all his sins, he confessed to his priest that he had begun to hate uh, God. He began to hate the, the, the fact of God's justice and righteousness because he felt that it was just impossible to please him. He was aware of his sin. And there was no way of winning until he came to discover from the book of Romans that God's righteousness is revealed from uh, from heaven in Christ. The way of God's justice is displayed through his provision of a Savior. He is just, yes, and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. And so the uprightness and the justice of God uh, are combined uh, for a believer in the goodness of God. And this is full of encouragement. God forgives us. And in his uprightness, uh, he also uh, corrects us. He pardons us in his mercy and in his righteousness. And he also sets us right. And he liberates us from guilt, but also leads us in his will. And the uprightness of God, his righteousness, is not only for us, in Christ, in justifying grace, but also in sanctifying grace to conform us more and more to his good will. And those who trust in him may discover just how rich his goodness is. Verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. All the ways of God with me are good. And then God's goodness is the source of all good. In James chapter 1, verse 17, we read that uh, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow uh, caused by turning. Every good gift is from a good God. God is like a, a, a spring, a fountain, an ever-flowing source of good. What a wonderful description that is of God. It, it is a beautiful picture. Uh, a fountain in itself is an attractive thing. It's a calming, uh, delightful uh, thing to to hear and to see fresh water uh, coming from a fountain. I have a copy of the Confessions that also gives uh, proof text. They're not in the original text, but uh, there were a number of passages that were provided for this rendition of our confessions. And in this connection, uh, one of the passages that is cited in, in uh, relation to God being an overflowing fountain of good is David's prayer in Chronicles after the people had brought the gifts for the building of the temple. And David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. 
Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And this is a prayer of thanksgiving for the ability to give uh, generously to the construction of the temple, something that had just been displayed by by the congregation. And uh, what does the psalmist do? Does he praise the congregation, the people of God, for their generosity? He thanks God for it because he recognizes that the gifts themselves are ultimately from God and the willingness to give them is from God. So it's, a, it's an appropriate reference in connection with God being the the source, the overflowing source of all good. There does seem to be a, a connection, uh, if not in the the mind of Guido de Bray when he authored uh, this this article in this language of of God being the overflowing fountain of all good, but there seems to be a a theological or a thematic connection between that description of God and what we read in Jeremiah chapter two, where the Lord brings this charge against uh, the people for their foolishness, for their ingratitude. He says, "My people have committed two evils." They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Again, it's a beautiful, it's beautiful imagery of a source of a continual supply of water, water of life, of refreshment. And forsaking the fountain of living waters, they have hewn for them, themselves cisterns. That's like a, a, a basin in which to catch water and to store it for a time because it's stagnant and it won't be long before it's not drinkable and not useful. But that's a description of our of our tendency, the tendency of our sinful nature to forsake God, the overflowing fountain, the fountain of living waters, and to carve out for ourselves our own ways of refreshment and happiness and enjoyment. So we think, but it's a bitter thing to depart from God. Yeah, it's a sad chapter that describes Israel's turning from God. And they did what we all do by nature. We misjudge where true goodness, where true well-being, where true happiness comes from. In their scale of values, you might say that the people of Israel here thought that the world and its pleasures outweigh God. Things sinful, selfish goals, in our world's estimation and in their practice, they say of such things, good. But with respect to God, with respect to God's will, with respect to life with God, bad, bad. God is too demanding. God's will is really at odds with my dreams. It's contrary to my desires. It conflicts with my self-care, to use a very... Uh, contemporary term, that's a tragic miscalculation. That's a sad mistake. Put it mildly, right? It's really at the heart of our rebellion, to forsake God. There is no prophet apart from God. That word prophet is used a few times also. Not a prophet in terms of someone that speaks the word of God, although it is used in that way too. In fact, it's used in this connection. In verse 8, it says, The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. 
The leaders uh, pursued things that were worthless. And the same thing is said of the people. My people have changed their glory for what does not profit. You know, our, our deceitful hearts are such that left to ourselves, we never hardly even ask of things that really are harmful and uh, have no lasting value that do not uh, cause flourishing or real happiness. And they never lead us to say, well, really, what good is it? Really, what, what fruit is there in this practice, this way of thinking? What fruit do you have in those things whereof you are now ashamed, Paul says to the Romans? And the answer is nothing. The pursuit of sin, the pursuit of life without God is always futile. It's not satisfying. Riches cannot deliver our souls from death. The pleasures of this world cannot satisfy our souls. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? A tragic loss. God wants us to see the unreliability of all, of all idols, of all idolatry. It's really quite moving the way God, uh, reasons with his people in, uh, Jeremiah 2, where he says, What injustice have your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me, have followed idols that have become idolaters? Neither do they say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits? I brought you into a bountiful country. It's that ingratitude that is at the root of Israel's departure from the Lord, their unbelief. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. God's goodness is the source of all good. Brothers and sisters, we need to live with that conviction. We need to have it continually restored. That has to be our prayer and our confession. We need to remind ourselves of it. And we need to drink continually from this, this fountain of living waters. And believe with the heart that, that God is good. And to confess that, whatever trials we might be facing, with a kind of determination and faith that clings to the truth of God's revelation. And he will prove it. He will prove it in time to your joy, to your highest profit, your real benefit in this life and the life to come. For Jesus' sake, amen.